Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the hot seat, feeling a bit of pressure to perform, it has to be said, as Australians are getting the job done on the world stage. Congratulations to Steph Kiriakou and Lucas Herbert, both winning on their respective European tours overnight. Cam Davis not out of the running yet on the PGA Tour when I last looked, which was still being played in Detroit. In fact, we might just call episode 83 the winner's episode. Because not only are our emerging Australian players winning around the world, but our guest today is also a recent winner and is no doubt basking in the reflected glory of her national team. They're on a tear at Euro 2020. It is indeed victories all round, including for us, when we get to welcome one of our favourite guests, England's Meg McLaren, along in just a moment. Before that, though, it's my co-conspirator on Good Good, Adrian Lowe, coming to us for the second week in a row from the Sydney Podcast Studios remote facility, also known as his home. Yes, we're kicking off week number two of Sydney lockdown. No coffee delivery for me, which is a loss, but perhaps you've carried the baton for the team with some sort of victory over the weekend, Logue. What have you done to hold up your end of the bargain? Uh, oh, nothing of note <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Any uh, golf at the weekend? Are, are you playing? I, I did. I played a lot of golf, very, a lot of very unsuccessful golf over the weekend. We played the, it was the foursomes championship mm-hmm. yesterday. And your partner and- cost you, <laughs> your partner cost you victory, obviously. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> it, somehow with foursomes, the sum of the parts is greater. It was yeah. in the worst way than <laughs> yeah, that's right. Than, I, I, don't, I don't know. You make doubles where you'd otherwise make bogeys, and triples where you'd otherwise make doubles. It's a crazy game, isn't it? Yeah, but it is a, a lot of fun. Thirty-six yeah. hole foursomes in groups of six. Oh, it, wow. Maybe with a bunch of friends. It may be one of the best days of golf you can ever have. So many people don't appreciate it. And it's only half a round. Ugh, stop it. Enough from us losers. Let's see if we can find a bit out a bit about winning. Three times I've introduced Meg McLaren onto this podcast, and three times it's been the same boring old intro. Blah, blah, blah. Meg's a two-time New South Wales Open winner. Blah, 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 blah. Well, today we get to mix it up because Meg has finally done the right thing and added to her professional victory tally. Almost exactly seven days ago, she took out her first Symmetra Tour title with a two-shot win at the Prasco Charity Championship in Cincinnati, Ohio. She joins us now to talk about that and everything else to do with golf and life that tends to distract us here at Good Good. Meg, welcome, and in all seriousness, from lots of people, congratulations. Fantastic to see you get the job done last week. Thank you very much, Rod. It's always a pleasure to be on. And uh, I obviously decided I'd been out of Australia for long enough that I was going to have to win somewhere else. (laughs) Well, you're always welcome to come back here and win any time. We hope that's in the not-too-distant future. Now, I'm going to break with tradition here. I'm going to throw the first question to Logue, who's been scouring the internet for footage, but I don't think he's found any. Logue, what did you want to ask Meg about? Well, I I did want to see some footage of your win, Meg, mainly because I wanted to see the fist pump. At the end, like, what's your, what's your fist pump form like? And was there any footage? I didn't see any. No, I don't think there is any footage. I did. Do you know what? I genuinely thought of you after our last conversation because there was, um, I don't, other people might not know, but I sort of was leading a Symmetra event a few weeks ago and they, they had video of me holding a putt on the last hole of the second round, which was to take, I think, a three-shot lead. And it had like a really subtle little fist pump because I suddenly was like, oh, yeah, like I'm, I'm leading because I'd been so like calm that whole tournament. And then I was like, oh, this is like quite a big deal. And anyway, I obviously didn't win that week. Um, and this past week, everything was so bunched, which is probably why there's no footage because there's just one one girl who does a great job, but there's only so many people she can get to. And um, 
I dropped a few shots on the back nine, but I knew I was probably still hanging around. The coverage. <laughs> um, so I was like hanging around, thought I'm maybe one or two shots behind. I walked onto 16th green, which is a par three, and I'd hit it to 35 foot. And there was a scoreboard by the green. So I'm thinking I'm probably two shots behind. So I got the shock of my life because I was still, I was tied for the lead at that stage. And then I drained this like 35 foot putt. And I swear to God, it was like John Rahm-esque fist pump. <laughs> I, I didn't know I had it in me to fist pump like that. And I was like, such a shame. Like nobody, nobody captured that. Yeah. But I was, I was proud of, proud of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Logue. Uh, that's fantastic <laughs> to hear. Fantastic to hear. Tell us a bit about that, Meg. That Marcus Fraser once described it to me as being in the con- in contention on the back nine Sunday. And obviously, if you win a tournament, that's generally how it unfolds. He described it like walking on a tight wire. That you you can't think about it too much because you'll fall off <laughs> if you worry about putting one foot in front of the other. What is it like? What's the buzz? What's the adrenaline? And to to Play in a tournament where you don't have a scoreboard or somebody walking with you or know exactly where you are at any given moment to walk onto the 16th and suddenly say, oh, I thought I was in one position, I was in another. That could go either way, couldn't it? It can, yeah. And I think it, well, obviously it worked in my favor this time, but in terms of where I was mentally during that back nine, every time there was a scoreboard, it it worked in my favor because I thought I'd, I'd managed to convince myself that I was probably a bit further back than I ended up being. So it was like, it felt like more of a bonus than a like, you know, oh shit kind of moment. Um, (laughs) Like it, I kind of knew on the front line I was doing okay. Like I started the round pretty well, but there were so many people like bunched up. You know, I think we started the round, maybe five of us tied for the lead and another 10 probably within two or three shots. So it's, I actually found, I found it more, less stressful than whenever I was leading a few weeks previously because I think I just got, you know, if you're leading, you know it's yours to lose. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I think in this situation, I was much more comfortable with all I can do is what I can do. And if somebody shoots 64, somebody shoots 64. But sort of you want to be the one, you know, that, that yeah. steps out of the crowd and you kind of in in those situations, unless you're firing on all cylinders from the word go, you just have to hang around like that's all you can do and when you have your moments you know try and try and take advantage of them so it was um like that's what we play for you know yeah. to, to feel that when you you see the leaderboard and you hold a putt like that is that's everything in golf so a little bit of you that knows when that ball goes in on 16 because they're the moments, aren't they? You've watched them your whole life in tournaments. You've watched the putt and you've, you've known as a spectator, oh, that's the one. That's the player with the momentum. That's the one that's going to do it. Did you feel that or can you not afford to let that wander in? A, a little bit of both. I felt it. I actually felt it a couple of holes before that. I'd, I think I bogeyed, bogeyed nine and bogeyed 12 maybe and um, hadn't, didn't do that much wrong, but you know you, you can't really afford to drop shots in that situation and it's funny because the girl I was playing with was one of the ones who was tied for the lead and I think we were the second to last group and she started well as well and she bogeyed the same she bogeyed 12 as well so we play I guess it was 13 and that I was like you know I've really got to focus here I've I've got to just dial in and, and not let myself get too far away so I missed the green with a wedge so I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's 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 not ideal focus. 
Um, it's good enough for Rory, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. Um, so I, I chip up to 10 feet. Um, and the girl I'm playing with does the exact same thing as I do. So I've got this 10 footer for par, having just missed one on the last hole and dropped a couple of shots. And it was like, that was the moment for me in the round where it's like, this is where you either lose, you lose the momentum and it's too hard to claw it back or you stay in it and who knows what happens. So I hold the putt and the girl I was playing with missed mine. And it was like, even though I'm in those moments, you can kind of see it maybe because I watch so much golf, like you can, you kind of know what's happening. Like I knew that as good as this girl was that I was playing with, that she just wouldn't quite have enough left in the tank having missed that but And I knew that I was, you know, how important that was to me. And you can, you know, as level as I tried to be in that round where it is just one shot at a time. And if I made a bogey, I was, I was still kind of even keel and all the rest of it. There's still moments like that when you're, you know that it's important. And that was one of them. And 16 was obviously just as important at the time. Watching Wimbledon at the moment, it's it's amazing how evenly matched all of the top tennis players are. It seems like there's nothing in it, but almost all the matches just seem to come down to these big points where, you know, it's you break point up with us looking at a second serve and you just take advantage of, of those opportunities when they come up. And and that seems to be the difference between winning and losing for for most of these tennis players that I'm looking at at Wimbledon. It's an amazingly ruthless sport when it comes to those big moments. And you get a bit of it in golf. Like people say, Nicholas won a lot of tournaments by just parring the last four holes. Mm. But he also, I think, more often than not, made a putt when he really needed a putt to be made. Um, I think it seems a combination of those They're- couple of things hanging around. Mm. And just getting that slight edge in the big moments is going to win you a lot of tournaments. They're often par putts too, aren't they, Meg? We always think birdies yeah, it, with pros, but a lot of the time it's it's a par putt here or there that is what actually swings it. Absolutely. I think that's the – obviously, playing on a tour like the Symmetra, you know, people don't see all the stuff that goes on. But it is, you know, you look at the cards and you think, okay, the birdie on 16 was big. And it, it was. It was huge. That was – like adrenaline wise that was as high as I've been um but it's the little things that people don't see like I hold a putt for par on 13 I get up and down from the bunker on 14 but it's you play enough golf to know that those moments are important like you know you can be annoyed that you're not giving yourself a birdie chance but like there's so many people in the same situation as you and it's hard to win like People are going to make mistakes. Like you're saying, Nicholas Parr in the last four, knowing that that's a lot of times going to be enough because people are going to feel it and they're going to make mistakes. And you just have to, I think you have to try and make your mistakes as as least damaging as possible and, and just try and hang in and, you know, not get pissed off if you miss a green with a wedge because you have to trust that you're good enough to make a birdie later on, which is kind of, how I managed that's kind of the mindset I managed to tap into last week I know you're kind of into it Meg but this is where I think all the golf stats and the numbers and um, decade and all these other systems is what it's that that to me is golf that bit that you can't account for is 
What happens as the two the two players walk off the 14th green, one's missed the putt from par from 10 feet and one's made it? That's not about stats. That's about humans in a situation and what those two different walks look like. We know Rory's two different people. When he's on, he bounces, and you know the field's in trouble. When he's bouncing down the fairway, you know great things are going to happen. And when he's not, you know, okay, he's still good enough to be around there, but he's not the Rory that's going to win. They're the things that all of the stats and all the analysis and all of that other hard work and the track man numbers, they just don't mean anything, do they, when you get to there? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's funny because I I won by two, I think, in the Mm -hmm. end. You did. So effectively – that 10 foot of a par, it doesn't make a difference if it goes in or not, if you take it from a purely numbers perspective. But I I would almost bet everything I have that if I'd missed that part, I wouldn't have won. And like that's, you know, you can't you can't data crunch that. That's just you know, that's just from playing golf and, and don't and try knowing that, by the way, mate. Don't try and, don't try to prove that next time you get a chance either. Don't say, well, let's, let's see what happens if we miss this one on 14 and what difference that makes. One of, one of the greatest examples of what you're talking about there, Rod, is that uh, the 90, I think it's the 99 Masters with Elizabeth and Norman. Norman, yeah. And walking off the 13th green, uh, Elizabeth's made eagle, I think, and Norman hold a birdie putt on top of him to stay oh, joint leaders or something. Might have been it the was other a way big around. moment. Yeah, it was huge. And really uh, amazing viewing but and and norman i think recognized it as this bit of entertainment like he, he knew oh that's an amazing moment and he's like hamming it up and pointing at elizabeth and smiling and elizabeth was like <laughs> elizabeth knew that it's not over and he he had this game face on walking off the off the green and norman was hamming it up and norman was a complete disaster from there on in and Elizabeth just was nails all the way to the finish. At $100 and, uh, that, on it was Norman really that year. That, that awareness of where they were in the tournament. I had $100 on Norman that year, Logue, and I can remember it like it was, yeah, I never bet on golf. And for some reason, Norman was $33 he was paying. What the hell? So I put 100 bucks on him. And as he was walking off that 13th green, I was screaming at him, no, no. Focus. Yeah, get don't, back in the Don't game. give Jose the thumbs up. He's going to assassinate you if you do. Then, of course, he missed the 14th fair. He missed the 14th green with a wedge. Missed the 15th with a sand wedge, Norman, and just just handed it over. Anyway. Sorry, uh, I didn't realise I was bringing up. <laughs> you've, you've opened a wound there that's never completely healed. Meg, you were around the lead all week. What toll does that take? A 54-hole tournament, I'm guessing, is, well, it's obviously easier than 72 holes if you're in that position, but that's a constant, isn't it? It's. I imagine there's sometimes like on a Sunday, you've just got it. You maybe go out a few shots back and you have a great round and you win a tournament, but that's hard work all week. You're around the lead. I know there's probably not as much press at Symmetra to it, but I'm sure you're interviewed each day. You got to, Everyone's looking at you. You've got the target on your back. Uh, what, what role does that kind of play? It must be quite tiring, I would imagine. It is, actually, yeah. And I think as much as, you know, it's a situation I have been in before and I've obviously won tournaments before, but if having the experience a few weeks prior when I had the three-shot lead and, and didn't win, that I learned a lot from that, you know, and it's not like it was a completely new situation for me, but I still, that overnight period of, of lead, you know, there was footage of me holding a putt. There was quite a lot of, you know, I, I probably spent too much time on Twitter anyway. <laughs> so it was quite a lot of people, you know, happy to see me lead in and up there because it was the first time this year, probably the first time in quite a while that I'd been leading 
going into the last round. Um, and I just, I just thought about it too much, to be perfectly honest. I thought about winning too much. I, I put too much pressure on myself because I, I really wanted it. You know, it's, it's what you play for. And I just, I got out of the, because the funny thing about that tournament was I nearly didn't play because mentally I was sort of, I needed a bit of a break. I needed a reset. You know, I wasn't quite happy with where things were. So I nearly didn't play. And of course that like letting go of your expectations <laughs> is how I ended up in the lead. Yeah. And then you get in the lead and it all goes out the window. So I think I learned a lot, you know, from just from that week and that experience. And it maybe helped that I wasn't alone in the lead um, going into this, into the final round of this past tournament, because I was a lot calmer knowing that it's, I could have a good day and somebody else could win. You know, the, the standard is too high for me to take that out of the equation. Um, so I think that just helped me stay, stay on a bit more of an even keel kind of in the, the overnight before the final round started. It, did, did anybody at the time when, when you lost that tournament a few weeks ago tell you, oh, you'll learn a lot from this loss? Or <laughs> you'll learn more from the losses than the wins, Was it something that wins, you dawned upon yourself? Like, oh, now, like, sleeping on the lead going into this tournament, now I know how to, how to approach this differently. The, le- the lesson um, didn't really kick in until that point. Or- yeah, I think the lesson probably didn't kick in properly until after I won like this time, like it just, I think a lot of this stuff just gets internalized and you don't, it's not always a conscious thing of like, Oh, okay. I, I spent too much time on Twitter. Like I did. The one thing I did do was not go on social media, like the morning before the last round. Um, so that's the only conscious thing that I did, but I think it was more of a, I think I wrote in my blog, like I wanted to be ready to win again that week and I wasn't and I just had to accept that and accept that it didn't mean I wouldn't be ready to win soon if that makes sense you know I just had to be in that situation again and see how I handled it and to then trust that this whole process of you know of getting better and being better mentally and calmer and and all those things that it would pay off the next time I was in that situation. It's one of the few things you can't practice in golf, Meg, is the winning. You can practice driving, chipping, putting, irons, and you do probably more of it than you should a lot of the time, I'm sure, and pay more attention to the numbers than you necessarily should. And all those. You can't practice that winning stuff, can you? One of the reasons it's a slow process, and I've always felt like one of the reasons golfers tend to mature later in terms of their resumes, or certainly it's what we used to see more into their 30s, is it takes that long to learn that part. First, you've got to get good at golf, good enough at golf, then you've got to relearn this whole second part of the process, which is the golf's now a given in this situation. I've just got to trust that. I'm doing it okay this week. Trust that. Do this other thing, which is probably different. You've won three times now. We've won on the Rose Lady Series as well. And all sh- all three, I'm sure, have been different. So it's not like there's a formula, is there? You, you can't just be tired and go, this is what I did last time, so this is what I've got to do this time. You can only sort of yeah. feel it. It's nuanced, isn't it? It's hides in the trees and it's elusive and moves around yeah absolutely and I think the trap that I think a lot of people fall into whether it's players or media whatever is it's like oh you get in contention maybe you're leading you don't win and they're like it's okay you'll learn 
but you're not necessarily going to be in that situation again quickly. Like mm -hmm. there are so many good golfers out there and golf is so fickle that just because you're in contention one week and you're like, okay, like learn from that, know what to do differently next time. You might not be leading again <laughs> for six months or a year or like, you know, right. and then you have to trust that you're, you know, you're good enough to, to come through the next time or whatever it might be. And the thing that I've kind of worked a lot in the past, I don't know, six months to a year on like the, my trust in myself and my mental strengths and all of that kind of stuff. And I think I've, I finally got back to a place where I trust that I can be the one in that situation to come through and that I'm good enough. And I've got whatever that unseen thing is to kind of pull through in those moments, you know, and that's, I don't know if that comes from having done it, you know, I've, I've won tournaments in college and in amateur golf, but I don't know if you get that confidence from doing it or if it's just an innate belief that you have to have in yourself to win tournaments. You know, it's just one of those, one of those aspects of golf that you can't really measure. It's the great conundrum, isn't it, like Does performance come from confidence or does confidence come from performance? And that's true at every level of golf. Just while we're thinking about that, you said something there, Megan. I remember Bobby Jones said this years ago. Well, I don't remember Bobby Jones said this. You read this quote from Bobby Jones occasionally. Golf is essentially a lifetime of relearning the same lessons. You find a swing key one day and you play great. And for the life of you, can't, you can't understand why five years later you wake up and remember it again. And in yep. between, somewhere in there, you just forgot it and never used it again and played rubbish for five years. And like, well, that's right. I just did that last time and it worked great. And here it is working great again. So there's there's never a, a sort of a destination. What about the confidence and performance load? You got any thoughts on that? Because that's true across all, all tasks, I guess, really, isn't it? it? Absolutely. It, it, I've, that's a really good point, Rod, that I think you can relate to this in all walks of life and in whatever your profession is. And people often describe... Um, you know, a golf career or, or you know, any sort of career as, as like a roller coaster, like there's ups and downs and things. But I kind of think that's the wrong way to use the roller coaster analogy. Roller coasters have the up part where it's like uh, going slowly up to the top of the, the, the crest. Mm. And then there's the down part where it's all on rails and it's kind of out of control. But it, to me... The, the better way to think of that analogy is the up part is the conscious bit where you're working on your performance and you're building confidence. And the down part is actually the performance. And I, I, I'm not sure I'd be interested in Meg's view on this. When you're playing really well, it's all just falling into place for you. It, I kind of imagine it must feel like you're just on rails and you're not getting in your own way. Like when people talk about not getting in your own way with the execution, Think that that part of the roller coaster, the down part of the roller coaster, is more the feeling. It's like, oh look, if I can just trust this, I've just got to, I've just got to trust this. It's not going to go flying off the rails. Uh, it's going to be enjoyable. In fact, if I if I just let it go, I've done the work in that up part, and now the down part's going to be fun, and it's going to lead to success at the end. Love it, Meg. Yeah, that's that's I think a really really brilliant way of of explaining it because it is I was talking to somebody on the Monday I think after I won and you know they're asking me how I felt and did I do this did I do that and I was like honestly you you sort of don't know how you do it like and I think the the overriding thing 
that I've noticed and whenever I've won is just trust. Like that is the ultimate how how you win. Like obviously you have to have the skills and you have to do this and do that. But to come through in those moments and to not let the pressure get to you and all the rest of it, it's it's being able to trust your own ability. And like you can have the thoughts of, I hope I don't mess this up or this is an important six footer or there's <laughs> trees the over thoughts. there on the right, you know, like there's, there's all those things, but like, it's not that you don't notice those things. That's what I think is the important thing to, to let people know. Like I, I hit three wood into, so the 18th was a par five. I didn't know if I was leading or not coming down the 18th and I could reach with the three wood, but there's like a hazard on the right trees and stuff and in one of the previous rounds i'd clip those trees on the right so all i have to do is hit this three wood onto the green but i knew that those trees were there on the right like i had the thought of you've been in there before but it's like in when you're performing at your best or when you're going down the roller coaster like it doesn't matter that you think that it like it's like it passes through this wall before it you know, before your body starts moving and that wall just turns it into like, it's, it's okay. Like, you know, you're capable of executing the the shot or the putt or whatever it is that you're trying to do. So it's just like a, it's not that you don't have those thoughts. It's just that those thoughts don't affect you for whatever reason. And, and you've practiced your punch out game. Yeah, as well, so <laughs> that's exactly right. So you've got, the, you've got the confidence not, not to, to, that's clarity, isn't it, Meg? Uh, where there's, there's the, the one idea of, Try and pretend that's not there, which is the don't think of a pink elephant discussion, which is, you know, who can do that? And that's the danger with that kind of thinking. The clarity is, and this is the hard thing in that situation when it's everything you've worked for all your life and all of that stuff is to know that the hazard's there, the trees are there, and not to not care about it, but just to factor it into the calculation, make the decision that three woods the club to hit and pull the three wood out and hit it. Not with that at the forefront of your mind. That's just a part of. I think every golfer's probably had the sensation, you would probably know this too, like go to a course you've never been to before. You don't ever seem to find any trouble because you don't know it's there. Mm. You, hit, you hit drive where on reflection you never should have. You hit shots at flags and into greens without realising that just short of the green there's water or a bunker because you've never been there before. It always seems to work out when you don't know the trouble's there. It's, it's, the mind is undoubtedly the greatest obstacle to all this stuff, no question. Yeah, in fact, uh, without revealing too many state secrets i've seen some papers on uh like evaluating course ratings based on the visitor um theory if you like where if you can take the members out of the data and only evaluate how the course plays for visitors you get a certain different measurement of the rating of a course Um, state secret Somebody said saying, there, Meg. Take not Wednesdays that it's off. Necessarily used or how it's yeah. used, but the uh, yeah, there, there is. Uh, it's it's a fascinating area, and there is some validity to the data that you get out of that. Is Meg McLaren brave enough to forego practice rounds and pro ams for the rest of her career and turn up cold to every first tee on a Thursday, having never seen a joint? Okay. That's sometimes sometimes you wonder, don't you? Well, you saying that you that tournament you almost didn't play, and then that you almost won. There's something in that, isn't there? It is. It's all tied up in that stuff, and it really doesn't have your dispersion at your level. Isn't that great? The scores change not a huge amount, 
74 is extraordinarily worse than 72 in so many ways. It's really just two shots. And they're, you know, they're not easy to come by, but they're also, the, the difference isn't that great. So it, it can only be the way you feel about what you're doing that's affecting that, isn't it? And it's, a, yeah. it's the hardest lesson to learn. I feel like those decade systems and that sort of stuff, it's not that they're not true, but that's what they're trying to solve is, is how do you remove the human from it? And if you do, you'll yeah. make the game completely uninteresting. Once you might as well just have machines out hitting the shots. Yeah, no, that's completely. It's like what I've, I think the past year, especially how I've tried to like approach things a bit more and like I'm not, I'm far from perfect at it, but it's just like the difference so many times is mental. It's, mm. it's where you are mentally. Like, okay, your swing changes day to day, but professional golfers, you know, they all have ability to, mm. to get the ball around. But, you know, like I played, I went back to Europe and played a couple of events and I was playing in the mixed event in Sweden and I didn't play well. It was just one of those weeks where everything was a little bit off, but I'm like, you know, walking down one hole in, in the second round, knowing that I'm going to miss the cut. And I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about my game. I'm not sure where everything is. Do I need to change what I'm doing? You know, do I need to have a rethink? Do I need to get my coaches out to a tournament? Like this is all going through my brain <laughs> as I'm still playing. And like, I'm lying in bed that night and I suddenly was like, you know what? This was my fifth event in a row with, you know, international travel and everything that comes with that at the moment. I was like, maybe I just need to let go of it and accept that I wasn't sharp enough mentally and that affected my game. And it was almost, it was quite a freeing feeling, you know, and it's, the next event after that that I go and win and it just it still amazes me how you can have thoughts that are you know you can eventually rationalize them but you know they're quite low and quite dark and then you know in the the flip of a switch you're you're right where you want to be the self-talk is so important isn't it <laughs> it's uh it because it, it strikes me Megan I, I I reckon golf professionals, touring professionals are guilty of this, of not appreciating. Golf swings don't win golf tournaments. If they did, Adam Scott would win everything he teed up in. It's just the prettiest, most beautiful. If you're a teacher and you've got the best technical golf swing, or you tell me who it is. If that's what it was, that would win every week, wouldn't it? And it's this other stuff is what makes the difference. In fact, you could make an argument, and, well, Clates has made this argument a bunch of times, that Tiger Woods is underachieved, given the extraordinary skill set that he started with and taking his swing apart three and four and five times. You could probably say the same about Adam Scott in some ways. That's not to denigrate how difficult it is to win, but if it was just about the ball striking ability, the stats would just stand up every time. And it's just not the case, is it? We've seen it time and time and time again. The lesser player wins. Yeah, there's yeah, an interesting... Um, Sorry, go, Mick. No, you go. It's okay. Um, it, well, I, sometimes you observe players in in those big moments making something happen, and I, I think they're, they're doing something where they're going against what the stats might be suggesting they should do. They're like attacking a flag, which they shouldn't be attacking, or and even maybe the situation in the tournament doesn't call for it. Like you could just you know hit to the center of the green and try and hold a twenty footer, but uh, some players just feel like they need to try and make it happen, and sometimes they make it happen. And it's uh, it's a different way. Look, it's um, I, I've seen it. I think uh, 
that Bryson's first win was at the 3M thing where he he made eagle on the last or or something that was a big water carry. Didn't Matt Wolf hold the putt on top of him and he didn't win? I'm oh, sorry, Matt. <laughs> you're yeah. right. You're right. Thank you. Both players, anyway, I thought left that green with a lot of confidence. Yeah, because they knew they had to make something happen and they made it happen. Yeah, and uh, I don't think stats could have. Uh, you know, maybe you know Scott Fawcett talking over their shoulder would have said, "Yeah, you've got to try and hit this next to the pin and hold apart." But uh, at the same time, I think it, it, a lot of the plan just goes out the window at a moment like that, and it's just like I'm just going to try and execute a shot and make something happen. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, endlessly fascinating game, isn't it, Meg? Well, of course, you went on from your victory on the Sunday to notch up another win, which was your column on the Wednesday coming after your blog post, which was just phenomenal and got, I thought, at least as much response and maybe more even than the victory itself. How important – we've talked about the importance of writing to you before and you've tried to explain it and you tell us that you can't really explain it but that it is important. How important was that part of it, to be able to then sit down and put it all down on digital paper? It's It's funny because um, the, the media girl, Ali, who um, is from Sumatra, who she stole like the blog post, by the way. Stole the blog post and put it on the Symmetra Tour website. I saw that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. well, so so she made a joke like immediately after I won about you know about me writing something, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm sure I will at some point. But the energy that winning takes out of you, I was like, to be honest, I, I don't know if I've if I've got it in me to put it into words. So she texts me on the either the Monday or the Tuesday, I think, and said, oh the the LPGA communications team have been in touch and they've said, if you want to write a piece that they'd love to publish it or help you with it or whatever. So I was like, oh, I was like, I hate having pressure to write. I hate it. It like goes against everything that I do writing wise, because like I've said to you guys before, sometimes I just wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, okay, I need to write. But if somebody tells me I need to, I, you know, I, I struggle. So I texted her back and I was like, oh, I don't know. I've, I've thought about writing it, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so she was like, there's no pressure. Like, it doesn't have to be soon, just if and when. So I texted her back two hours later and I was like, oh, I've written it. Here you go. <laughs> it's on my notes on the phone here. And uh, there, you, there you go. You can have it. Did it just – Did it? some writing we know. People who haven't done it maybe don't. Logue's aware of this. He's done some writing the last couple of years, written some brilliant stuff. Some just slips out like it's – you know, it's just all been pre-lubed and everything's ready for it to come out and some is really hard work. What was this one? It was hard to start it because I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted to say because like I then kind of went on to say, I think when you have a moment like that, it's like all the pieces just fit together. So it's almost like I don't need to write and analyze everything because it's already made sense to me, which I think a lot of my writing is about trying to get to that point and a lot of times when you win or you have a good performance you know it's already it's already done it for you um so I found it hard to start and then I realized I just needed to kind of go back and explain that process of how it how it did kind of fit together and and what those pieces looked like so once I kind of got that angle on it 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 was quite easy to write because there's a lot of um a lot of pieces this year that remain quite vivid in in my head. So I found it found it came out quite easily. What what you're talking about there really sounds like 
what I observe as a theme from your blog is that writing is therapy. Like, mm. And if you've, if you've just had a success, what's there to talk about in therapy? Like, yeah, it's like, I'm good, guys. I can go home. <laughs> Thanks, that. Yeah. I'll, well, what's <laughs> happened there is the LPGA Communications Center. We thought, oh, good stuff. One less yarn we have to write this week. We'll get Meg to put something together and we'll use that as one of our pieces. I can tell you from the other side, that's exactly what was going on there, Meg. A couple of interesting points from the piece I thought. Players who miss cuts or shoot even par on the weekends or don't win, the latter of which is 99% of the field, don't tend to get interviewed too often. True. So we don't get to hear the best players in the world talk about how damn difficult the game is even for them so much of the time. There's so much truth in that, isn't there? And I think we've talked about this before. Television viewing skews your thoughts of golf because they only show the players who are playing well. That's all you get to see. You don't get to see the struggles, do you? Absolutely. And I think this is where I retweeted something about this a while ago. Like Tiger still skews our perception on everybody, I think, because you take somebody like Rory or Spieth and like they're two brilliant people for the game of golf because they're so honest. Mm -hmm. But like the media and probably themselves as well you know, they want to know why they're not winning every week. Why haven't they won 20 majors already when they won quite a few so quickly? And, you know, the reality is they've still, both of them had incredible, like, Hall of Fame careers, basically. But because it's not Tiger, like, we're all like, well, what's wrong? Why, what's happened to you? Yeah, it's some extraordinary stuff in all that, isn't there? And, of course, you know, you're talking about multiple major winners by their mid-20s. If you think about that, that's just a, and exactly right. So like, yeah, but yeah, but it's not Tiger. Well, newsflash, people, we're not going to see another Tiger for May. He might be a once in two or three generations player. That's the truth of it. And his stats, if you follow Justin Ray every now and then, just for a bit of sport, I think he's like you with writing. Justin, he digs into his bag of Tiger stats every now and then, just because it's therapeutic. It's just off the charts. It's extraordinary what he did. In any sport, forget about just golf. Just, uh, just amazing Your stuff. Favorite one, Rod, the beat the field statistic. Well, that's, that's my favorite one too. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a Mark Brody piece that he wrote for a golf magazine. It was just you know, so so beating the field average score for something like eighty plus rounds in a row. So that included Thursdays and Fridays when everybody had made the cut, and Saturdays and Sundays when everybody who was playing well was included. And then he beat the field average score. Every round, for, and I think the next best was thirty something, which is uh, raises some interesting stuff. So I'm not you, really you know how averages work, though, Rod. There was uh, you got oh for this. <laughs> bang! I wrote a piece last week. Rod about wrote Maria. a piece. I got a bit of flack for Maria <laughs> Fassi. I found well. What happened was I, Maria Fassi got the slow pay penalty at the PGA there, and she missed the cut by a shot, and she had a bit of a tantrum afterwards, which was understandable. But I found this term, which you'll appreciate and enjoy, this Meg, illusory superiority. This notion that if you ask 100 people if they're above average, average, or below average drivers, about 80% will say they're above average. And so Maria Maria Fassi's tantrum was that, you know, we all know who the slow players are and that I'm not one of them. And in the next breath said, yeah, sure, I took longer than I should have on that shot. So it was kind of this idea of I'm not a slow player except when I play slow. And if I do, there's a good reason for it, so I shouldn't be penalised. So it was just this – I wrote a piece sort of about – and we're all guilty. Every one of us is guilty. You know, people don't fix their pitch marks. Hands up if you haven't – if you've ever walked off a green without fixing either yours or someone else's pitch mark. We're all guilty of it. But somebody on Facebook then wanted to give – what did he call me, Like How arrogant – what an arrogant piece by this writer. Needs to go back to maths class and do basic maths and understand the difference between averages and medians. 
which is true. I do need to go back to maths class, but it sort of missed the point of what I was trying to say. He's a... Like you should have st- replied with a statistic saying 100% chance that you're a man <laughs> explaining this to me. That's right. Well, statistically, we've all got more than the, the, the average number of legs, don't we? Because, you know, if there's one person in the world that's only got one leg, we're all st- – that brings the average down. So there was a <laughs> there was a bit of sport in all of that. And it was not a critical comment about Maria Fassi, by the way. It was just she illuminated beautifully what so many – it's this self-looking that you do, Meg, that writing does for you that we probably don't indulge in often enough, is we? I imagine – do we? I imagine you would come away from a an incident like that and, yes, you'd have the tantrum at the time, but you'd reflect on it later and maybe write about it and think about it and understand it a bit better and put it into more context. That was the point, I guess, of what I was trying to make. Hopefully, I won't be in that situation, so we'll never know. I can't imagine you would be either. You're not what we would call a slow player. Are you uh, a, a quick player, Mick? Um, I think I am most of the time. So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the well, same thing. Of course, you'd say that. Yeah. Are you a good driver, driver as well? Mate? Are you above average driver? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I'm above average. <laughs> I am. Um, I do think I take. I can take a while on the greens if, but you know, it's. I think I'm probably more aware of that. So then, you know, most of the time I am quicker. You know, it's one of those things like yeah. you, I think we're all probably a bit more aware of it now because of there's more talk about it, isn't there? Yeah. If you have a chance, have a listen to Padraig Harrington's thing about golf interview with John Huggin. He talks about stuff. Oh, have you heard it? What would you take on what he said about Mickelson? You're talking about that tee shot on the Sunday at the PGA and did he hit it? He talked about if he hadn't been aggressive, yeah, that would have been the choke if he hadn't been aggressive because for Phil and his particular, there was some fascinating, he's a fascinating guy, Harrington. I'd love to lock him in a room with Jeff Ogilvie with a microphone and see what comes out yeah. on the side. I thought, I found that really interesting actually because that wasn't what I would have expected him to say because he, he gave a couple of examples about himself as well, didn't he? And yeah. I found that quite... I. I get what he's saying, but it, you know, it seems like if you're trying to win the golf tournament, there, you know, there's a place that you don't want to be, and I wouldn't call it choking to do the opposite to that. But you know, no, they've won yeah. majors, so yeah. we to argue with them. <laughs> yeah, hey, they didn't. They didn't win last week, Meg. So recency <laughs> bias tells us they don't know as much as you. Which is something I did want to ask you about. Jeff Ogilvie told me this once about 10 years ago, the year after he won the US Open. I interviewed him about a year after for a, a magazine I was working for. I asked him well, sort of what's been the most surprising thing about being a major winner. And he said, well, staggeringly now, apparently I know everything because I've won a major. So now, you know, and of course he's a good talker and he's articulate and thoughtful and all those sorts of things. It kind of happens, doesn't it? How, how does that play into now? Every time you do something like this, you have a bit more success you have probably got a bit of what Ogilvy's got. You do this blog and you're known for that outside of your golf. All of this meshes together, doesn't it, to create the Meg McLaren public sort of figure. What comes with success that's perhaps unexpected? You're just doing it for the trophy and you get the trophy and then everybody else gets to have their say. I think it's – I guess it's just the expectation that is the hardest bit to, to deal with. Like I – you know, you, you win one week and all of a sudden you're like, if I don't win next week, if I'm not in contention next week, it's a failure. Whereas two weeks before that, you were thinking, you know, just 
keep grinding, let's see where we're going kind of thing. It's, it's very difficult to not change your perception of yourself, you know, of, of your own ability. And if things have gone differently last week, like I said, somebody could have shot 64 last week and I wouldn't have won and you wouldn't, you know, I might not be on this podcast. There would be, I, I wouldn't have the extra thousand Twitter followers that I have. I wouldn't have written that Well, I might have still have written the blog, but you know, it's all this stuff that, you know, one little thing could have changed the outcome of that tournament. And it wouldn't, it probably wouldn't make me any different sitting here now if that had happened. So it, I find the whole, you know, we, we do it with everybody, put everybody on a pedestal because they win a tournament or whatever. And a lot of the time, you know, it's it's due to things that are out of their control as much as things that are in their control. So I think being aware of that as an individual, you know, is is one of the most important things because I've, I vividly remember in the last round last week having the thought after I made my second bogey of having the thought of I might be too far back now to win this. Like somebody else might be playing too well and I can't catch them. But I'm really proud of what I've done so far today. I like I knew in that moment that I was I'd handled it better than the time a few weeks prior. You know, I I was like, okay, this is a sign that I'm doing the right things. And I think that's one of the first times that I've been okay with potentially not winning whenever I've been in a situation where I could win. And I think that's kind of a lesson that I need to hold on to a little bit because like we were saying, sometimes you have to relearn things that you, you know, <laughs> you thought I you might in five knew. years time be like, Oh yeah, I remember <laughs> that now. Like, why did I forget that? Well, that's um, the last five years. Like that sounds like the Jordan, give me the ball. I'm not afraid to fail. Yeah, indeed. And perhaps that comes from when when you are not playing well, forgiving yourself for not playing too well. Like if you're missing a cut, like you know, forgiving yourself for missing a cut because that's all part of a career. You know that that stuff's going to happen. And if if you've managed to do that, then if it's not going a hundred percent your way when you're in contention, you're still able to say, "Well, look, I'm just I'm doing my thing. I can't control what everyone else is doing." It's, it's I think. Sorry, Rod, were you going to jump in? I was just going to say, you know that you could have been an accountant, Megan, not have to worry about any of this stuff. <laughs> just Monday to Friday. I'm not sure my blogs would be as interesting. Weekends off. Maybe not, but, you know, Monday to Friday, weekends off, have a dog, you know. It, just get a bad rap. They're crazy, crazy people, crazy. The, you know any accountants? It's, this is wild. But this is torturous in so many ways, Meg. We're talking to you on a high this week, which is fabulous, you know, but you know that this game's going to go down and back up and down and back up again and all of those sorts of things. You're going to have more of those torturous moments. Um, are you just yeah, it is, to- but you know what? Like, we talked about it already, that putt on 16 and, like, the fist pump and everything. That moment might only last 10 seconds, but, like, it is everything. Like, that, you know, that hit of the drug can get you through five years yeah. Like, and, you know, we're all completely insane. Yeah. That some, something that lasts 10 seconds can, you know, see us through five years worth of agony. But, you know, that's that's what it is. And I think it's just like the validation of all of the, for, like, you guys obviously know I, 
I think about stuff a lot whenever it comes to golf and just the validation that comes in that moment of, you know, every time that I've sat there and questioned everything that I'm doing and maybe not trusted this or not trusted that and found it difficult to, you know, go and see somebody about this part of my game or that part of my game. Like in those moments, it's, you know, that is, that's precisely why we do it and why it's worth it. Not to be grubby, but that euphoria you're talking about, sex has been doing that to humans for millennia, hasn't it? It's true. The crazy things people have done and the lives that have been thrown away and the damage that's been done chasing that couple of moments. But 99% of people can do that, can't they? Well, it's gambling is a is Not, the analogy always comes to mind for me. Yeah. Like golf is a real the gambling. Account, you're nice. an accountant. We've discovered what's going on here. You're an accountant at Deep Down Logue. You went straight for gambling, numbers, <laughs> statistics. There's a gambling mindset to golf, though, in every respect, isn't it? Is. Like those, just the, the hit of those big wins, which are far rarer than the losses, mm. is is what just keeps you coming back. Mm. Whether you're not playing well or not, You it's the chance to roll the dice again because it might be it, your day. I love that it's true at every level, Meg. It's as, just as true for a 36 marker as it is for you playing the secondary LPGA Tour on your way to the LPGA Tour and then at the very top. It doesn't change. The level of competition changes, but all the same drivers are in play, aren't they? I think um, I wrote a blog actually not that long ago. I think it was like the first tee window or something. And that's the bit I was trying to make the point about is it is like at every single level of golf you have that. It's like that that moment of opportunity like it doesn't matter what's come before doesn't matter if you've had like an awful week at work or whatever it might be like you stand there on the first and it's like oh you know anything right now could happen this could be the round that i remember for the rest of my life and i think that you know that's kind of what we're all chasing a little bit as well is that possibility every par three statistically is just a hole in one waiting to happen isn't it for every golfer that passes through do you know it was probably justin ray but i saw a stat about um it's more likely to have a hole in one than to hit every green in regulation yes in I think it was, and like i i can't get my head around that at all loose, and i refuse to believe that loose loose stagnant hit every was green was it lou? the other week okay. yeah I think it was Lou Stagner. Don't argue with Lou, Meg. <laughs> you, no, yeah. you can't win. His, his numbers will be solid. Trust me, I saw that stat too and thought that, well, there's no luck, I guess, in hitting 18 greens, is there? <laughs> it requires you to probably hit 14 fairways to start with, most likely, to have a chance to do it. So there's an awful lot has to happen before you hit a green, whereas a hole in one, it can bounce off a tree, as I've seen happen, scuttle through a bunker and fall into the hole. Those things uh, those things. Lou Betzalus hit every green in the third round of the, might have been, yeah. of the tournament. Yeah, it's it's not enough rare. was said about that, I think. In fact, when she hit the last green, the commentators didn't mention it, but it just hit 18 green. I wonder if she realised at the time. I wonder if she knew that she'd just hit all 18 green. She probably didn't. When she sort of looked back at it afterwards, she maybe would have realised it was uh, interesting stuff. That, that first tee thing, though, Meg, it reminds me of the greatest golf meme of all time, I think, where you've got Leonardo DiCaprio looking like the Wolf of Wall Street, like he's looking like a million dollars and ready to take on the world. Cut to, you know, a few holes later, it's Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. completely in tatters, 
never know where we're going. somebody over his shoulders just I, trying to survive. I feel like a trailer attached to a car when we're with you. Like you're driving and we're just getting dragged along with wherever it is that you're going into these unexpected places. A few things to think about, Meg. First of all, for your own, for yourself personally, I want to ask you about a couple of other players and some other things that have happened around the place. Uh, what does this do for I noticed one of the great victory speeches of all time and your thank yous you thanked all the club at the staff and hope that they have a good tournament next year obviously because you don't plan to be there which is exactly the right attitude and I think they took that in the spirit it was meant what does it mean in that sense these little bits of confidence can't be taken away they can't take that victory away from you ever anybody so that's all part of the process going forward now I know that your goal is to try to become the best player in the world or you wouldn't be out there giving it your best but what does this mean in terms of where it puts you on the Symmetra Tour list and your goal of getting to the LPGA it's very helpful, put it that way. Um, so I'm, I moved up to sixth in the money list after that, and the top 10 at the end of the year gets their card. Um, and it's kind of, I've like, I've done okay before the win. Like I had, you know, missed a few cuts, but had a couple of decent finishes. I think I was mid twenties before I won. And you kind of know, it was like, I probably need to win, you know, to have, to realistically have a chance of getting in the top 10 unless you're coming top five every single week it's like because the money is so top heavy winning makes a huge difference mm -hmm. um so to have done that and to not have the pressure of you know having four events left and and knowing that i need a win then that's kind of i think that's quite a big weight off my shoulders you know i obviously still need to play well from here on out because it's it's very tight and there's a lot of good players, but I think doing that halfway through the year instead of getting to, you know, late August, September is, is just something that I can build on rather than have as, you know, a noose hanging around my neck. It's, it's a bit freeing, I imagine, in that sense. And then the other thing, of course, is does it change your thinking about your schedule? You sort of embarked on this crazy schedule this year of going backwards and forwards between Europe and the US. You played a bit on the Ladies European Tour, and I know you love the Ladies European Tour, and you want to do everything you can to support it. Does this change now? These are all the decisions that have got nothing to do with whether you hit the three-wood or not on 18. These are all the real professional golf decisions about scheduling and what that means for rankings and where you end up and where you get to play. Does all that change now? Have you had a chance to think about that yet? A little bit, yeah, and it's still there's still part of me that there's events that it would hurt me to miss on the LET, but I think the longer I've played out here in America this year, the more I've been like, you know, head down, like, this is your chance to do this. And, you know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't kill me to play another year out here. Like, I, I enjoy it and the competition's great, but it's like, why would I sacrifice my chance of getting my card at this stage? And I think coming back to Europe to play those two events before, like last month or a few weeks ago, it kind of hit me again that it's hard to perform at your best when, when you're doing that. Like it, it's hard enough to perform at your best when you're, you know, getting on a plane every week and driving from one airport to a hotel and all the rest of it. And if you add in jet lag and, all the rest of it into that it's just you're you're putting yourself at a disadvantage and as much as i love the let and you know i i want those opportunities as well it's for this year it's like you've got a job to do and you know you know what you need to do to get the job done kind of thing so it's not to say you won't see me pop up in europe <laughs> at some point but um 
it's it also having said all of that is kind of like I've been taking it chunks at a time so like I've got three events in a row over here coming up so it's like play those events and then kind of regroup again win two of them and then you don't have to worry about any of it you can do whatever you want for the rest of the year and then focus on the LPGA the following year of course once you make it once you're one of the you know, one of those players in that top 50 or 60 in the world, and you can play wherever you want, then you've got the freedom to go and support the Ladies European Tour, as we've seen Laura Davies do such an amazing job of over the years. In a funny way, the best favour you could do the LET is to become one of the top 20 players in the world and then go and support them as and when you get to pick and choose when you want to play. So there's sort of balances and things. I don't envy you having to make those decisions. And the other thing, of course, is just going home. Leave aside the jet lag and all the other stuff about the swabs and the constant COVID-19 yeah. checks. You get home and you've got your family and your friends and you're trying to play your best golf. It's almost too much. If you're going home, you need to kind of go home and not play golf, don't you? You need to go home and do all the stuff that being at home means. Yeah. And to be honest, that's like that's the second part of the decision that's hard is like whenever I went back to Europe a few weeks ago, part of the reason I did it was because I knew I'd get a week at home before coming back to America. And like that was the best thing for me, you know, and I saw my coaches and it's probably not a coincidence that it was the week after that that I won. So it's like when you know that that is beneficial to you, it's trying to figure out how and when you can do that as well. Um, So, yeah, they're all, all things that get factored in. But at the same time, I'm obviously very lucky to have those decisions to make. So. There's, there's that side to it too. And the money to make them now, Meg, so that's fantastic, so, which was nice. must be nice to get a nice big cheque too just every now and then. All the rest of it's great, but at some point you've got to pay the bills. Have you got a base there in the States? Kind of. Um, there's somebody in Orlando who I know who lets me stay with her kind of as and when, um, which has been really, really helpful, although this week I couldn't stay with her because she had family and stuff and 4th of July, so there's lots of things uh-huh. going on. Um but I'm, I'm obviously lucky that I know know a few people, but that's one of the things that I had to make sure I took care of because I came and played in America in 2018 and I didn't have somewhere to come back to in the off weeks. And you wow. just sort of, Drifting. you end up stranded somewhere in, you know, in the middle of the country and you're like, what, you know, what am I doing? Um, so just taking time to reset for yourself is is huge out here. If there's any FBI agents listening, have a look for stranglings in sort of middle America in 2018 <laughs> in between some Metro Tour events. You might have yourself uh, a suspect. We don't realise, I suppose Australians do in some ways, but just geographically how big America is and what's involved in getting around for a tour that traverses the country backwards and forwards. Often by car, I think. You drive hundreds and hundreds of miles quite often on the Symmetra Tour and same, I don't know about the Corn Ferry Tour these days, there's a lot less of the flying, a lot more of the rubber on the road, isn't there? It's a pretty gruelling way to, to chase the dream. It is, yeah, although you you kind of realise what works best for you because I, I try to fly more than I drive because I just, you know, your neck gets all tight and you sort of just get completely fed up whenever you're on a straight road for eight hours or something, so... You learn what's what works for you, but you know then you have to deal with your clubs going missing and you yeah. know trying to pack everything into a into a suitcase and all the rest of it. But these are the things that we do to to chase a dream, so it's worth it. It's, it's difficult being an above average driver too, Meg. It's frustrating. <laughs> you see all the below average drivers <laughs> out there on the 
on the road. I'll let you get some words in in a, sh- in a second, Adrian. A couple of things I wanted to ask you about. Well, one in particular, actually, Steph Kiriakou had her first LET win as a professional um, overnight, which was fantastic to see. You were there at Bonville, as was I, when she won a couple of years ago. Give us some thoughts on Steph. There's a lot of interest in her here in Australia. As a fellow player, and what you see there, and uh, I feel like she's got a bright future, and she might be a prime example of some of the things we talked about earlier. Sort of the swing's good enough. It's not her swing that's that – when she gets that look in her eye, she's a player that shoots 63. That last round she played at Bonville was just staggering. It wouldn't matter whether she was professional amateur or been at it for 30 years. She just reeled off birdie after birdie after birdie after – that's its own special talent. Nothing to do with technique in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's – first off, like, she seems like a great girl. Like I've got to know her a little bit and she just seems really like level-headed and cool and Very just somebody Australian. that you like hmm. – very Australian maybe that's why I like her Um, but I was I think all of us were very very impressed with what she did in Bonville because she obviously played such good golf to get into that position but you always kind of think well Mm. trying to win your first professional tournament like it's going to get you a little bit you might still win but I'm sure there'll be some stumbles along the way and she just was relentless Mm. and like that's how she just looking at the scores in um, in Holland, you know, she she was exactly the same. So to have that ability to, you know, to clearly just be, whether she is fearless or not, I don't know, but her golf is. Um, and that's something that you you can't teach, I don't think. No, you know, and it's, she's, you know, she's obviously young and I'm sure she'll have her, her struggles as well. But, you know, a lot of people take a long time to learn how to win and, to have that ability straight off the back. It's like I was saying to you before, um, it it allows you to trust when you're in that situation again, you know, and you you don't question things so much as somebody else who's been on tour for five years without winning might do. So it is very impressive. And I think um, it will be interesting to see where she goes from here. Yeah, indeed. One, one technique thing that always intrigues me with Steph Kiriakou is the way she triggers her swing, mm. shuffling her feet around. It just amazes me that in almost all of professional golf, I can't think of another professional golfer who triggers their swing with that much foot movement. And uh, it'll be intriguing, I think, if she start, you know, gets reaches her potential and you know becomes one of the top players in the world and get, is on TV a lot. Just what influence that might have with um, juniors and stuff. Seeing how she plays because I think it's great. I love, I love watching her swing and, and that way she sort of gets into motion. It's very athletic. It's a bit old school, isn't it? But one of the criticisms of modern golf, one of the, I think we're probably going away from it a bit, ironically because of Trackman, in the 70s and 80s you could pick a player from four holes away by the golf swing. They were all unique like fingerprints. In the 90s and the 2000s we had a real period there where they all looked very much the same after the video camera and everyone played sort of positions. We're probably going back a little bit with Matthew Wolf, Ricky Fowler you think of. There's some more distinctive looking golf swings these days. Meg, what sorts of things do you work on in that sense and what's, what's your take on that notion of sort of formulaic homogenous kind of goal swings versus where we seem to be going, where TrackMan tells you that's the number that matters and it doesn't matter how you get there. Yeah, I think um, I actually think TrackMan will help people start to swing their own swings again because, yeah. like, for me personally, I know which numbers are important to me, so I've stopped obsessing quite as much. Like, I know there's positions in my swing that 
if I get those where I want them to, then I'm probably going to play well. But there's a couple of numbers that's like, okay, as long as you're getting those, then that's that's what you need. Um, and I think it's great because it will, you know, people get so it's hard not to with social media and how much golf there is on TV. It's hard to not compare yourself to everybody else and to best golfers in the world and like Nelly Corder's swing or Anne Van Damme's swing, you know, as female golfers, we look at those and it's like, how do I do that? But, you know, it's, you just have to figure out what, what works for you and be okay with things that might not look as pretty, but if you know, you can get the job done, then it doesn't matter. I just, I've said it many times on here, but track band should be a human right. Yeah. She has been getting for this. You should. It's like people spend years and years wondering what yeah. that feeling translates <laughs> to in what it does to the ball. And track band gives you that straight away. Like, you you know, that it's feeling that. produces that ball flight or that, that feeling produces that. It should be a human right. Poor yeah, pe- right. Imagine the poor people. <laughs> not getting to close with, the loop on that. Come with golf club membership. All of their golf career. They could spend decades practicing it the wrong path. a lot of other loops, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's rabbit holes to fall down there. It's worse than a good, good podcast if you're, uh, if you're not careful. I've got to tell you, it's not just women who um, envy Nelly Corder's swing, Meg. <laughs> it's uh, she might be the best Everybody golfer on the planet. The yeah, she might be the best golfer on the planet at the moment. She's having her Harrington eighteen months at the moment. Who knows how long it's going to go on for? You get the feeling it'll be more than eighteen months. But what I really like about Nelly Quarter's game is it's not a one-dimensional. Often in America, and it's it's not a criticism. You answer the questions you're asked. If you play all of your golf in America, it's a certain type of golf. It, it tends to be a certain type of sort of aerial golf. She proved when she won out here in Adelaide. I thought that she had all of the shots. The, the run-up shots, the low ground game, she could hit all of the shots and she made oh, staggering numbers of number of birdies the year that she won the Australian Open here in Adelaide but played the style of golf that was asked and I love to see that in a player. Um, I think Rory's yeah, got that. I, I played that um, that Australian Open and I, I played really well that week and I loved the golf course. Like, yeah. absolutely loved it but it is, you know, complete opposite end of the spectrum mm. to where she just won kpmg so it is impressive to to be able to do that at two different two completely different venues so it'll be interesting to see what um yeah if she if she doesn't get weighed down by expectation i would say is her only sort of potential downfall Uh, hardly anybody's talked about the quarter family and had any expectations on them have they meg with the brothers doing well at wimbledon and i think jess and nelly are both going to the the olympics so i suspect in some ways i remember talking to ryan ruffles about this there's been a bit of an advantage having grown up in that environment in that family being surrounded by people who've been successful at the highest level of a sport that you absorb by osmosis. It's not, an, it's not a world that you sort of break into and have to get used to. They're used to being around seriously successful people at the top of their games. I think there is some advantage in that if that's what your chosen career path is. So Ryan Ruffles certainly talked about that. I think his dad coached Pete Sampras for a long time. And he said, you know, he'd just come home from school and Pete Sampras would be there. Well, you can't buy that, can you? Can you imagine that? Just chatting with Pete Sampras as a teenager. Um, some of that has to kind of rub off, but yeah, staggering stuff. And it's, uh, I love that idea that she plays all sorts of different sorts. So it'll be great to see, um, be great to see to watch the, the links go coming up. What's your immediate schedule? Are you in the Women's British Open as yet? No, so this is, <laughs> this is one of the things consuming my brain at the moment, um, because of the, 
so I'm playing the next three Symmetra events. Mm -hmm. And then I think that takes us to maybe like the Scottish Open, which is the week before the British mm -hmm. Open. But I'm not in not in the Women's Open. Um, and I actually, it's highly unlikely, well, it's borderline, whether I'll be high enough to get into final qualifying for the Definitely. Open. So. so it's, I'm waiting on the next LET event to see where I end up after that in the order of merit and then I have to decide whether I'll come and do qualifying or not. That decision being made for you in some senses would make life a lot easier. I think if you if you miss out final qualifying, you would in your eyes, well, do you know what? Maybe it's not this year. And to be honest with you, it's a Canoosty, great golf course, last place you'd want to play competitive golf. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a brutal finish. I've never played a more difficult final five holes than at Canoosty. It is relentless. Far too many fours on that card in both yardage and par. There's something out of kilter there. <laughs> it needs to be. It's funny. I, um, I played in the British amateur there like years and years ago, and I'd completely forgotten about this until now. But last week, one of the girls I played with in the Symmetra Tour, we suddenly realised that we played together in that British amateur. And the reason we knew that was because it it was one of those like Scottish days, complete pure calm, like blue skies, no wind, no nothing. And we had the tea time at like three o'clock or something. So of course everybody, you know, goes out, plays nicely in the calm weather. Like everybody comes in, they're all happy and we head out nine holes in the sky. It's like the end of the world. <laughs> and to this day, it has never taken me so long to dry out clothes after a round. And so we like were reminiscing because we were like, that's the probably the hardest nine holes of golf that we've ever played, ever experienced in our lives. So it was quite funny. Hell of a place to do it. See, golf gives you these little gifts, Meg. You can take that with you for the rest of your life and always uh, <laughs> always enjoy it. Well, I, I, I hope that the rest of the year continues in this vein. It feels like in a career this is an important building year. Hannah Green built the career she's now having on a fabulous Symmetra to a year, and I hope that you're in the process of doing the same, Meg. Fantastic to see you get your first win, and we hope, as do many, I think, that there's more of it. Not just for the wins, they're fun, but I like the blogs that come after too, mm. and I'm sure there'll be blogs whether you win or not, so. It's, uh, that, they'll be in, it'll be in the show notes today for this podcast, wouldn't they? All the listeners, yeah. they just go to their podcast just, player and... Well, they, all you've got to do is say it, Logue, as you know. You just say it on the yeah. pod and they magically appear in the show. They notes. appear in there. Yeah, good on you. Meg, it's been fabulous to talk to you today. It's always fabulous. We appreciate you taking the time. Best of luck. When's your next event? Next week? Next week, yeah. Fabulous. Well, we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on you as will many others. It's been great, for you, great of you to take some time today. Not at all. Thank you both for having me. Always enjoy talking. You know that. Always a pleasure. And you're good at it. That's why you keep getting invited back. Logue, thank you, mate. Good to have you aboard. Thanks, Rod. Always, uh, always a hoot. That's episode 83 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. I'll get on and make the magic happen behind the scenes now, Logue, and you can get on with the rest of your day. Well, and the job's done. The rest of you will see for episode 84 next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.